0: And now I want to answer three questions that you guys sent to me on the Apostles' Creed. There was a good question about the usage of this phrase, descended into hell. That's a phrase that's in the Creed. It's kind of a controversial phrase. Uh, It can also say, descended into the dead. Somebody asked, why did we use that here, and what's the scripture around it? Well. There is quite a few scriptures. Uh, There's scripture in Romans 10, there's scripture in Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 3 that talk about Jesus descending. One communicates that he descended and taught to the prisoners, uh, those in bondage. So there is at some level a descent that Jesus makes. What we say here is hell is simple in this definition. It is a separation from God. Hell is any separation from God. And so at its most simple element, that's what we look at. And so when we see Jesus on the cross, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We believe that there is some sort of separation between the divinity of God and the humanity of Jesus. And that separation is what we defined as hell. We decided that instead of trying to make it sound right, we're just going to teach around it. Uh, the second question that, I, that I've got is why do we keep saying Catholic? Like what, what is... Why do we say the Holy Catholic Church? And that's a fair question. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you just look at the verbiage. The word Catholic comes from the Greek word katholikos, which means in general or according to the whole. It is the universal church of God. It's not a specific denomination or place, but it is God's church universally. And so we just leave it because that's what it was written and we're gonna teach it. So that's what Catholic means, universal church of God. And then the last question was like, how do I use the creed? Like it's not scripture, it's not like a psalm, it's not a poem, how do I use it? Well, I I would respond by saying this, this creed is identity, this creed is truth, this creed is who you are, and I would actively use it. When you wake up in the morning, say the creed. It grounds you in exactly who you are. If you're at your table with your family, You can say the creed. You don't have to do those things, but those are ways to use it. Understand these are identifiable, uh, struggling with words there. These are conversations, these are statements on identity, and they speak to the truth of who you are, and you can use them in any setting that you need a reminder of who you are and who Jesus is. Well, let's head into this week. We are in the last week of this. You know, before I got the tug to come into pastoral ministry, and I'll just be clear, it was a tug. Like, I never thought in my life that I would be a pastor. I never thought in my life, even five years from now, like five years, I never thought I'd be working in a church. Uh, it was not even on my radar. There is nobody more surprised that I'm here, up here, than me. And I got a chuckle for service on that, but... I know, maybe you are surprised that I'm up here, maybe you know me, Uh, but I'm more surprised in this than me. I did not want to, and what I found is, and I've known this in some of your lives, that the things that you've said, I'm never gonna do that, end up being the things that you actually end up doing. And, And what I believe, the reason behind that is, is if I have a human desire, I'm gonna work there with my human effort. But if I say, I'm never gonna do that, at the end of the day, if I'm doing that, you know it's God. And it's God that sustains me there. And that's exactly where the gospel wants to meet us in our weakness and our unwillingness. And so I'm here today and I'm surprised by it, but I remember saying yes to that. And my greatest fear in being a pastor was doing funerals, being around death. I just was scared out of my mind that that was gonna be reality. And like three weeks from starting this job, my first funeral, and I was so nervous, and I vividly remember all the preparation, and then I did it, and I sat in my car, and I wasn't overtaken with with relief. I didn't exhale over the fact that it was over. I sat in my car overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude, not that God had brought me through it, but that God had allowed me to be a part of it. We as Christians have the answer on death. And as I've grown in doing funerals, there are things that I've learned that are important to teach as a pastor in those settings. The first thing is that we remember and honor people well. The second thing, and this is going to sound a little obvious, is that we compel an understanding that this person Is dead. And I know you're saying, thanks Captain Obvious, but we're going to get into this deeper. We don't do well with death. We avoid it and leave it in the world of cliche and ambiguity. And it's important to remember the finality of what is happening in that moment. And the third element is that we are clear on the gospel, that we are clear on the gospel of Christ. That is why I can sit in my car, in a position of being honored to be a part of that because we have in the gospel the answer to death. Not just the forgiveness of our sins through Christ, but Christ conquering victory over death, that he has defeated death, the enemy of us. And so Paul writes this, and we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians 15 quite a bit today. This is what he says about the work of Jesus. He said, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is that death is no longer the enemy, nor is it harmful to those whose sins have been pardoned. It is this truth that we speak of today in our creed. The last two lines of the creed say this, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, amen. There is hope for the Christian in death. Today we're concluding this series, this Apostle Creed, which is the earliest summary of the Christian faith. And I have to admit, you don't make friends by teaching the creed. There are heavy things that press on us. Uh, I have, since I, these last few weeks, I've talked on judgment and sin. And today I get the enviable job of teaching on death that leads to hope. And so maybe you think I'm just twisted and sadistic. Uh, I'm not. um, Maybe a little bit, but I'm not fully. What I have learned in my life, and maybe you've learned this too, one of the most significant things for me is to actually talk about things that I don't want to talk about. That the things that I don't want to talk about tend to be the things that I need to talk about. And what's great about the creed is its honesty. It takes us to places that we don't want to go to look at things that we don't want to look, about, look at. And it's for our benefit. We're going to look at some things today that we don't want to look at. I can tell you in preparing this, there are things that I didn't want to look at that, that have caused great consideration in my heart in these messages. So today, I, we get these final two lines. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. These... Are truths that make all the difference, but I find ones that we ignore even when we need them most. So here's what we want to do today. (coughs) We want to get to a place where we hopefully stand in awe and reverence and marvel at the assurance that we have a victory over death because of who Christ is in our faith in Him. But to do that, as we do a lot of Sundays, we need to deconstruct and root backwards to see how our human heart and our human wisdom, my human heart and my human wisdom that bends towards self-preservation, bends towards pleasing myself, that we might see how we have corrupted God's wisdom, that we might see in our fallenness how we have leaned into our own wisdom, in our own way, and our own preferences, that we might come to a place of humility to see the wisdom and the truth of God exalted that we would esteem it, that we would prefer it above everything else. And so let's walk into some very uncomfortable places today and see where God meets us. When we consider death, one of the things that we have developed right from the start is a belief that death is natural. And it seems to really put us on the wrong foot. It is the perspective that overwhelmingly that we believe as a people that death is just a natural part of life. Everybody eats, sleeps, pays taxes, and then they die. But what's interesting is that the Bible has never taught it that way. In fact, it teaches it the opposite way. Scripture's viewpoint of death is that it's an enemy. And Paul writes about it here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says it this way that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. What Paul is saying is that death is not natural, that it needs to be dealt with and that it needs to be destroyed and it has been destroyed. In fact, the most well-known story, probably in the Old Testament, David and Goliath in the book of first Samuel is far less about your size not being an issue or trusting in your capabilities, and far more a foreshadowing story of what God would do through Christ. Goliath is this impossible force of evil, this giant enemy who is feared by all the world at the time, but is conquered by a feeble, meek, seemingly weak leader named David. It is a foreshadowing story of what the humble suffering servant, Christ, would do to humanity's greatest greatest giant, our greatest enemy, death. Just as David triumphed over the giant Goliath, so would Christ triumph over our enemy, death. David and Goliath is far more a story about God's power, his love, his desire, and plan for you, and far less about strategic wisdom to conquer personal giants in your life the bible teaches that death is not natural in fact god didn't create death in his good creation it was the result of sin and someday the world's the word says that death will be no more but surprisingly either perspective whether you believe it as natural or unnatural we all arrive at the same place the bible says we see death as the enemy however one perspective embraces the enemy as this great giant that can be slayed, and the other perspective sees it as the end of all things, all that is worthwhile, all that is satisfying, all that is important. Two perspectives, two different realities. If you believe that death is natural and there's nothing that you can do about it, it's going to happen, how are you going to tend to cope with that? Our preferred method is that we stuff our lives with what brings us pleasure and comfort and satisfaction, and we try to completely avoid and deny death even is going to happen. We want to not consider that as an impending reality. Certainly, this is the way of the world. We prefer to deny death or avoid death than to embrace it. And so just consider this. It's not, I'm just not saying this, but just think about us as a civilization. We used to die in front of our families, in our houses. There was no other options. Weeks and months, people would be in their parlors. People would be visiting them. You would be face to face with death. today, we have places that you go to die, places that you go to visit death, people that deal with dying people for you. And none of those things are bad, or nor do they need critiquing. But it shows us our great avoidance of death. We want to box it in, and we want to put it in a place that we don't have to deal with it. We avoid it because we think it's natural and there's nothing that we can do about it. And so we would better just spend our time not thinking about it. But the word scripture seems to compel that that is a foolish practice. That there is wisdom in knowing our end and embracing our end. The psalmist writes in Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain the heart of wisdom. Lord, teach me to know that there is an end to this, that I might live for your cause better. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7, he said, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It is better to go to funerals, he says, than it is to party. Since this is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart, grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of pleasure. And Paul writes that we should consider what lies after death in 2 Corinthians when he said, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The wisdom of scripture seems to compel that we should very much consider death, that there is wisdom and meaning And knowing that this is going to end, that we would remember and prepare and ultimately that we would seek the remedy for death. And so here's what I want to do. As gently as I can, uh, I just want to sit face to face with you today and remind you of some very hard truths. We are all going to perish. You will die someday. It will happen. One morning the sun will rise and you won't see it. One day they'll celebrate holidays and birthdays and you won't be there. Your friends and family will at some point gather to celebrate your life. They will bury you, and they will go back to church and eat some chicken and mashed potatoes. Someone will claim your possessions. They will sell your collections. The world will pause for a moment. And as quickly as it paused, it will start moving again. The world will not stop for you. Life will go on. And Solomon reminds us of this in Ecclesiastes 1. He says that there is no remembrance of those who came before. And of those who come after, there will also be no remembrance but of, by those who follow them. Solomon says, people are not going to remember you. And the people that did not remember you, the people that follow them will not remember them. You are not as important as you think you are. The world does not revolve around you. So do you hear me? We will die someday. And I know that there are people in this room that would want more than anything for me to tell a joke or change the subject or pray and just end this thing so you can get out of here. But it is to our benefit that we sit in this understanding and let it sink in. We will die. And it's a crushing and desperate thought unless you swallow hard and embrace it. If, if you do, you will find preparation to live. If your life in faith does not include these words, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, we have nothing. Nothing. And we do all that we can to not embrace these truths as foundational. But in them we find the most compelling and hopeful truth in all of Christianity. That death is not natural. It is our enemy. And it has been defeated. We don't fear what has been subdued. It does not have a hold on us anymore. If you had a problem that was unavoidable, but a treatment could be had to remedy it, what would you do? You would move heaven and earth. If you had cancer, would you deny it? If you lost your arm, would you avoid practical treatment? The Bible says that we must see our impending end so that we might prepare ourselves to truly live. To truly find the remedy for our enemy. That is the right perspective of death. That is the godly perspective of death, that I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. That is our hope. And the Bible speaks this way about our hope. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. He says, For I deliver to you as first importance. What is also, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus conquered death. Nobody expected it. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. Chuck Martin writes in his book, What If It Is True? He writes about this beautiful moment of Christ conquering death. This is what he said. I'll put it on the screen. He said, this is the moment in which Jesus has made good on his promise. Gone is the tortured carpenter. Gone is the heavy la- lum- heavy, lumbering splinter-laden cross. The nail's still dripping. It's been snapped like a toothpick, reduced to splinters. It doesn't hold him anymore. Neither does the grave. This right here, this is Jesus. The firstborn among the dead, the victorious conquering, undefeated king who holds the keys to death and Hades. And in this is the moment in which God the Father has officially and once and forever transferred you and me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of his love. Satan's defeat was absolute, the victory complete, eternal, irrevocable. As Jesus walks out, he exits through the prison of cells, the Alcatraz of hell, where his people have been held in bondage, slavery, every form of addiction, every sin, and as he walks by, every lock clicks, every shackle falls off, gates of bronze are ripped off their hinges, bars of iron are cut in two, prisoners long held captive begin screaming at the top of their lungs... Death has been defeated, our Goliath has been slayed, and God's people have been restored. That that is our hope. That Jesus, in his resurrected body, brought the keys of death to the throne and sits as a conqueror. And it is in his work and what he has done that he literally changed our address for those of faith who see death not as natural and unavoidable, but as an enemy that must be defeated and has been defeated, not by my own effort, but by procuring the remedy, our Christ. When we trust him, when we walk with him, when we love him, we will find that Jesus' work literally has changed our address. Paul writes it this way in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. No longer do we live in the kingdom of darkness where death is unavoidable or natural. Our God has secured for us new identities, new citizenships in heaven as sons and daughters of Jesus in his kingdom, the kingdom of God, in an incorruptible kingdom where death no longer holds us And it is living in that new kingdom today that is the proof that we've procured the remedy for death. To live today as if we are in the future kingdom of God and bring it here present to live by its values, by its morals, by its truth, by its king. It is the proof that we have taken the remedy. Not by my own effort, but in a response how loving and serving Christ has been for me to defeat my Goliath, my enemy. And in our affections for the greatness in which Christ has served us, we know that when we die, our lowly, corruptible bodies will be made new. Paul says this, so is it with the resurrection of the dead What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul says, Christian, you will be raised again from the dead. Where incorruption triumphs over corruption. Where glory triumphs over destruction dishonor, where power triumphs over weakness, where spiritual triumphs over natural. We will be given heavenly bodies where all of our afflictions and our addictions and our deformities and our defects will be removed. God will wipe away every tear. There will no longer be injury or sin. For the first time in our lives, we will know by experience with our own eyes God's presence. And for the first time, we will love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. For the first time, we will see the one who we were made for, and we will be satisfied. The glory of Christ will permeate all of creation. That has been the consistent teaching of Christianity for 2,000 years, but we somehow lose sight of it. Your future is physical, your future is eternal. You will be resurrected. And that is worth being excited. But it's not all. Because the next part of the creed says, life everlasting. You are going to live forever. Forever. John writes about it in the book of Revelation. He says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, forever and ever. There will be a day where there is no impending end. There will be nothing to deny. There will be nothing to fear, nothing to avoid, just a place of perpetual hope and love that is endless You and I will be gathered together with all who have come before and trusted in the name of Christ and all who will gather after us in the name of Christ, and we will gaze upon the face of God. Charles Spurgeon, who's a pastor of old, writes this. He says, to look upon the face of Christ signifies to be well acquainted with his person, his office, his character, and his work. So the saints in heaven shall be more knowledgeable of Christ than the most advanced below. As one has said, the babe in Christ, admitted to heaven, discovers more of Christ in a single hour than all that is known by all the divine that sit in all the assemblies and churches on earth. We will see Jesus clearly because sin will be done away with. We will see Jesus clearly because care and worry will be gone. We will see Jesus clearly because idols are done away with. Friends, you have much to look forward to. You have no reason to fear. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And we may not feel like we need that hope now because we're relatively heavy. But might I remind us again? You will die. It is Christ that prepares you for that day and gives you the hope to face your greatest enemy, your biggest giant. You have no need to fear. It is the reason that I can sit at funerals with gratitude in my heart. We have the answer on death. And we can live in that reality now, with that knowledge now, in that kingdom now. All of it is available to anyone who wants it, anyone who receives the gift of eternal life that Jesus came to give us. We receive it with empty hands of faith, doing nothing that can earn it, but giving to him only our sin and receiving from him adoption and eternal life. And in that faith, because of the gift of eternal life, Because of what he's done for us, we live as citizens of heaven today where Jesus is king as much as he is today. Our great hope is our belief in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. We avoid it. We deny death. But Christ says, you don't need to. It is finished. It is not for you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today with token gratitude that should be vats and vats and vats of thankfulness. That death is not the end, that you have slayed it, you have stomped it out, it is not our enemy anymore. You have defeated it, and we can live in freedom through you. And so, God, I pray for those in here who have adopted a fear of death. Lord, I know that uncertainty is hard. But, Lord, will you resonate in our hearts and our minds today through your spirit that you have dealt with it? Yet, yes, in this condition, we will go through it but we will be resurrected and made new and live forever in a place of perpetual hope and love. Help us to to see our death that we might live fully for you today in your kingdom now. We pray this through Jesus' name, amen.